If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of Genesis in chapter 25. Book of Genesis, chapter 25. And I've been amazed. I've always been somebody who, in my ministry, has believed in consecutive, verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible. But it's just been incredible how the Lord has, as we've worked through the book of Genesis, just brought things to light at times in our church body and with relevance to various things that I could have never planned. (laughs) The most clever person planning a sermon series could have never planned out how God's Word would be at work among us and just hit with such relevance. Even a chapter like what we're going to read together from Genesis chapter 25, and we'll read together through the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Lemuam. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Henak, Abida, and Elaha. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Naaboth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Abdin, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Mesa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nephish, and Kadema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages, by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Hivala to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, 
If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out of his hand, of, with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. Let's start with a little game of finish that lyric. I'm sure you all have heard this song. Father Abraham had many sons. And that's exactly what Genesis 25 is about, right? Abraham had all of these sons, and we get, but we get at this very important truth, that not all who were physical children of Abraham were truly children of Abraham. Paul actually gets at that in Romans chapter 9, and here's what he says in Romans 9, 6, and 8, sort of commenting on this chapter. He says, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. Genesis 25 is here to get at what real relationship with God looks like. It can't be assumed by birth, but only received through new birth. It can't be purchased by flesh, but must be provided through promise. See, some of us still attempt to pursue God based on works, while the only way to do so is to pursue by grace. Grace makes all the difference. And in this chapter, we get two contrasts, two sets of kids that display the two ways people often attempt to come to God. First, you'll see this in your notes, the children of Abraham. We get to see the children of Abraham. And we come right off the heels of Genesis 24. Sarah's died. We saw last week that the longest chapter in Genesis is dedicated to getting Isaac a wife. And Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And then we find something that sounds probably unexpected to us. Genesis 25 verse 1. Abraham took another, another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, so Abraham, one, is in his upper, he's, he's over 100 years old and somehow finds himself another wife. Good for him, right? 
And Abraham here, we don't, we don't hear a lot more about Keturah. We don't know when he met her. We don't know how old she was. But incredibly, he's dying. We, we see at about 175 years old, and she is still bearing children up to that point. Incredible, right? And you see, verses 2 to 4, uh, a bunch of names of kids she bore that uh, I struggled to read, and that's okay. And the good thing about it is if I mess the name up, nobody here knows, right? But, but and we read that together, and one of the reasons I, I did that, just so we know, is the Bible says to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so there's something even in these lists of names for us to see, right? There's actually a few names here that I think we need to stop and consider. We see that Jokshan fathered Sheba, who likely was the descendant of this lady known as the Queen of Sheba who came around in the days of Solomon. You see the name Midian, and the offspring of the Midianites are going to be constantly at war with the Israelites. Later on in the book of Genesis, it's actually the Midianites who, who Joseph's brothers would sell him to to put him into slavery. And if you read through into the book of Exodus, Moses married a Midianite, but when they're in the wilderness, they were an ongoing adversary with them. And all of these children are ultimately nations that are going to come through her. Each will have a nation and a people that will come through him. And yet we see in verse 5 something incredible. Here's what we're told in verse 5. Look at this. Yet we're told that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So among all of these children, it's Isaac who received the blessing, which is incredible. And yet, we also know Isaac had another brother, didn't he? He had an older half-brother, technically, a guy named Ishmael, who you saw from, mentioned from verse 12 to verse 18. And we see that Ishmael was the son of Abraham through Hagar, who was an Egyptian servant, and in verse 12, we get a bit of a background about Ishmael. And in the most Genesis-like way possible, we get a genealogy. Let's look at this real fast. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And then we get this long list of names, right? We get this long list of names, but we do get this that these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And that these people settled, in verse 18, over against all his kinsmen. But what's incredible is in this genealogy that most of us would have just glazed over in our morning Bible reading, we get a reminder of God's faithfulness. We get a reminder that God keeps his word because back in Genesis 17, God said, yes, I'm going to make my covenant and continue the promise through Isaac, but Ishmael wasn't going to be completely left out, was he? Genesis 17 says this, Genesis 17:20 tells us, as for Ishmael, Abraham, I've heard you, I've heard your prayer. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him. 
He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And God, here in this genealogy, kept his word. Ishmael is blessed and multiplied greatly. You can read through the names there, 12 nations, 12 princes. Genealogies are often a reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness. They're not just there for no reason. These weren't just randomly thrown in here. They were there to show, look at this way that God kept his word. And so Abraham, through three different women, has a total of eight kids. Ishmael came first, Isaac came second, and then we saw all the sons of Keturah third. And yet, Abraham's promise and blessing would only go to Isaac and through Isaac, the promised son of Sarah. He got the estate, and he ultimately got God's blessing. Look at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer, Lahai, Roy. A few things to notice. First, Notice that description of Abraham. He's dying at 175, and it says he's dying at a good old age, an old man, and full of years. I love that description because it's saying he didn't just live a long time, but he lived a long time, and he lived a full life. We need to recognize 175 years is a long time to live. By today's standards, it's very long. There was a headline uh, earlier this month I saw that a man named Kane Tanaka, who was the world's oldest living person, died at 118 in Japan. So this was just this past month. There was a man who was the oldest living who passed away at 118. That's a long life, but Abraham lived almost six decades longer than that. Incredible. And we see that Abraham's buried in the cave of Machpelah, the cave that Sarah was buried in. And we see something interesting, that Isaac and Ishmael arrive at the funeral to have him buried. That Isaac and Ishmael, though brothers, if you, as we've been reading through Genesis, they don't really interact much, do they? They don't get together. Many of us can relate because even the fathers of Israel had family they only saw at funerals. Right? They only saw one another here when Abraham has died. And notice he wasn't buried with Hagar or with Keturah, but Abraham was buried with Sarah. He was buried with her, and God blessed Isaac, his son. Many sons had father Abraham, yet only one would be the promised child. While there were many children of the flesh, not all were children of the promise. Grace made all the difference. Let me bring this home. What is the point of this for you? It means that you can come from a Christian home, Christian parents, even generations of a Christian legacy, but that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. 
what made Isaac the promised son was the grace of God, yes, but also his faith in the promise God made. So my question would be, where is your hope? Is it in your lineage? Are you kind of hoping that, well, I'm just going to sort of ride on the, on the coattails of my parents' faith? Because let me tell you, that's not going to get you very far. Or maybe grandmama, or maybe your grandfather or grandmother's faith, maybe I'm just going to ride on the back of that. Or is it in the promise? Because all of these kids here came from Abraham. But in the future generations, most of these children would be at war with Isaac and his children. They could say, well, my, you know, you can say, well, my granddaddy was a pastor. I mean, their granddaddy was Abraham. (laughs) And look where they ended up down the road. There were many children of Abraham, yet only one child of promise. And this reality is on display in the second half of the chapter as we move from the children of Abraham now to the children of Isaac. To the children of Isaac. We come to a whole new section of the book of Genesis. And of course, how does Genesis kick off every new section? It's got to give you a genealogy, doesn't it? It's got to give you one, even if it's short. And look what verse 19 says. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. So we see this, this new movement, this genealogy that kicks everything off. And we see that Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and from, of Padam Aram, sister of Laban of Aramean, to be his wife. So the story focuses in on Isaac and Rebekah, who we were introduced to last week. And we see a similar struggle with what happened with Isaac and Rebekah, with what happened with Abraham and Sarah. Look at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Familiar, right? Sarah spent generations of time barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But this time something different happened. Verse 22, look at this. The children struggled together within her. Full stop. The children... (laughs) She's having more than one. What a surprise, right? In fact, there were twins in her womb, and God had an incredible purpose. He was going to birth through her. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's a couple realities that stand out here. First, this tells us clearly the value of children. On this Compassion Sunday, there's a clear appeal here that children matter to God and they should matter to us. Because what God saw when he saw these children in the womb, he said, they're nations, (laughs) There's going to be more that comes after them. There's tons of children out there in this room, in this county, and in this world, and every single one of them is infinitely valuable and matters and is made in the image of God. 
And that means children should matter in this church, in our homes, and in our world. And often, I think sometimes well-meaning Christians can sort of think about children and youth as something to be relegated to somebody else's problem. Well, I'll let this volunteer take care of it. Well, I'll let this person think about that. But every single one of us should consider them a priority. Jesus, when the children came to him, he didn't say, let's put them over there. He blessed them and brought them to himself. Will we do the same, investing in them, whether here or beyond? Notice again, each of these baby boys were nations. Nations were in her womb from babies Come nations, and they are considered persons with purposes given by God, even from the womb. The Bible is clear about this. Life begins at conception. There is life in Rebecca's womb. This is simply put the biblical and scientific position, and it's not a political discussion. This is something the Bible is clear about. I want to speak clearly here, and again, none of this is political at all. This is something the Bible is very clear about, that abortion ends human life. It ends the life of a helpless baby in, our, in the womb, and our culture has embraced a love for this, and to be honest, they've kind of given up the argument. They're not really interested in arguing with you about when life begins anymore. That's not even really the discussion because they can't really get around that reality. What's super interesting is many of you have watched Dana and I as we've experienced our losses and our miscarriages. And what's so interesting is even the most pro-abortion folks would say, sorry for your loss. Why is it suddenly a loss when we want it, but a clump of cells when they don't? And our culture's favorite response, let me prep you for this, because I've heard this all the time. People say, you aren't pro-life, you're pro-birth. You only care about having people born. You don't care about them while they're here. And my response is, friend, look around. (laughs) Look around at the ramp ministry that our church does, the food pantry, the work of the way, the work of Compassion International, and consider that any hospital you've ever visited with saint in its name came from someone with a Christian worldview. Let me tell you something. And, and did you know this? I looked this up this week. Vanderbilt University and their hospital, the first 40 years that they were around, they were in a Methodist school with a Methodist affiliation when all of that was founded because Purely secular people don't build hospitals. Or if they do so, they do it inconsistently because why do you spend resources to save clumps of cells or to reverse matter in motion or to fight the survival of the fittest? My point is this. The twins were purely human in the womb. They had intrinsic value with life worth protecting, not life that should be sucked out limb by limb or destroyed in a chemical attack. And God had a purpose for each of these twins. The Lord, before they were born or before they did anything, God had already declared a destiny for them. These twins were not just baby boys. Nations were going to come through them. And yet, that doesn't mean all of it was going to be positive for them. They'd be divided 
There'd be a conflict between older and younger. And then Moses fast forwards very quickly. He moves from the day of their birth very quickly to adulthood. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Esau means red. Afterwards, his, brothers came, his brother came out holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Think about that, men. New babies at 60 years old. Look at that. When the boys grew up, Isaac was a skillful hunter, hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we get introduced to these two twins. Esau, the older brother, we're told he's covered in red hair all over his body. That's one of the things we need to know about him. It's such a prominent feature. As I said, his name Esau literally means red. And then we hear about his younger brother, Jacob, who came out holding on to his heel. His name Jacob literally means healer, H-E-E-E-L-E-R, like somebody who holds on to another's heel. Esau becomes a hunter working in the field while Jacob was quiet and stayed at home. But the saddest statement, I think, is the one at the end, that Isaac loved Esau because of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Full stop. It's sad there was favoritism in this family, and there shouldn't have been. Isaac and Rebekah were not necessarily perfect parents. We see favoritism, but we also see diametrically opposed personalities. Anybody with kids knows how this goes, right? They're always going to be different, and they're always going to end up on different extremes, aren't they? And conflict was present from the beginning, even with the situation over the heel. And so we know more conflict is coming. And and we get dropped into one altercation that they had that had lifelong ramifications. And in this altercation, we see the fulfillment of God's prophecy to Rebekah. Look at verse 29. Look at this. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I think we can be tempted to treat this with too much familiarity. This is one of those Sunday school stories, right, that people have heard, especially if you've grown up in a Christian home. You've heard this story before, but I don't want us to come to it with too much familiarity because we come to it, And we see Jacob cooking up some stew, but friends, he was cooking up something far more than stew. He knew when Esau would come in, and he led Esau to sell his birthright. As the firstborn, he would have had the inheritance and access to the blessing that would come through Abraham and Isaac. And this sort of firstborn status, he's led to sell that for red stew. 
As the firstborn, Esau should have been the recipient of the promise, but he gave it away. And I believe that Esau and Jacob had some idea of the promises given to Abraham and Isaac, and that's why this birthright matters. They would have talked about this and known about this and heard about this. And look what Esau does. He comes in, and in verse 32, he says, I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. Kids would never say something like that, would they? Right? Kids never do that. And we all know it's very unlikely he was about to die. But he was a man with little self-discipline, very little self-control, and even less faith. Because he's willing to exchange the blessing of God for momentary comfort. And we get background at the very end of the passage that Esau despised his birthright. I mean, that's pretty clear. He sold his inheritance for a bowl of SpaghettiOs. I mean, it wasn't even that impressive what he got out of it. It wasn't even that good of a stew. But he sold it for that. And this is part of the reason Esau... And the nation that came through him called Edom would be called Edom or called Red. Not only because Esau was red, but because they sold everything they had for red stew. And it's interesting here how similar the name Edom sounds to the name Adam. And I think there's a comparison being drawn here. Edom, just like Adam, traded God's blessing for food. And Edom would, just like Israel, Israel in, in, in Exodus 32, they worshipped this calf. And it said of them, they built this calf, they worshipped it, and they would eat, drink, and rise up to play. Just like Esau ate and drank and went on his way. Here we see one child of the flesh and another the child of the promise. But we need to realize that Jacob wasn't the child of the promise because he was holy or righteous or deserving. Because look, I mean, he tricked his brother into this. He's living up to his name, Jacob the deceiver, the one who would trick him. But the difference was grace. Grace made all the difference. Look what the book of Hebrews would later say of Esau. This is Hebrews 12. This is how Esau is remembered. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it makes many defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it, the birthright, the blessing, with tears." Esau is ultimately an example of someone who's unholy, who had a root of bitterness, who was sexually immoral, and who was never, never came to the point of repentance. But Jacob, friends, wasn't some holy guy either. He's remembered because of this altercation, and there's going to be another one in the future we're going to see as a deceiver. He was a schemer. He would, rather than trusting the promise of God given to his mother about the older serving the younger, he tried to take matters into his own hands. 
Jacob was just like Abraham when Abraham sought after Hagar and going, well, I don't know how God's going to bring this about, so let me just go get another woman to make this work. He was trying to achieve the promises of God not by grace, but by works. And let me bring this home because beyond that, all of us are like both Jacob and Esau. Friends, just like Jacob, many of us scheme and plan and maybe even try to justify deceits with the end goal of achieving God's promise. We act as if God needs our help to do what he's already said is going to happen. And we're tempted to think that our wisdom is superior to God's word. We go, well, I know God says this, but... This seems much more wise to do it this other way. But Jacob is a clear example of what a disaster your wisdom can bring about in your life. Yet, we are also often like Esau. We think it sounds crazy to forsake an inheritance for a bowl of soup, and yet every time we sin, we make the same exchange. When we watch pornography, we're saying that the momentary pleasures that that might bring is more important than the eternal pleasures God promises to the pure in heart. That when we strike out in anger or bitterness, are we not saying that our momentary release of that is better than just trusting the eternal justice that God's going to bring? The judge of all the earth will do what's right. When we intentionally rebel against our parents, and hear me, honoring your father and mother continues after you're 18. It just looks a little different, right? When we intentionally rebel and dishonor them, are we not saying that we know better than our heavenly father who put them over us? And are we also not saying that that we're thankless for the good gifts that God has provided for us? Friends, Like both Jacob and Esau, we are all sinners before a holy God. And this is where grace becomes clear. Because God, as we're going to see, will lavish grace on Jacob, the deceiver. Romans 9, which we saw earlier, shows God's grace to Isaac over the other Oh, to Abraham over the other son, or to Isaac over the other sons of Abraham, but it also moves to show the grace of God to Jacob over Esau. Look at Romans 9, verse 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not yet done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, there's a few things here that might be a little hard to swallow. Think of this. First, the passage speaks of God's purpose of election. And that's just another way of speaking of God's grace. Some people get all mad at the word election. It's, it's a biblical word. If you've got a problem with it, take it up with God, okay? He used it there. And God's grace to them wasn't based on how they were born or the good or bad they did, but solely, great, solely based on him and his purposes. In fact, it says it originated in him who calls. It was God who shows grace according to how he sees fits. 
that the promise he spoke, he would bring forward to fulfillment. But that last verse probably startles us as well. Verse 13, quoting there from Malachi chapter 1, God decreeing his love for Jacob, and it says, but Esau I hated. In other words, he's simply saying he embraced and saved Jacob, but he rejected Esau. Esau was unwilling to repent, unwilling to do anything different. He hardened his heart, and so God gave him over to everything he wanted. God's purposes were more than simply what they would do, but also whether they would end up knowing him or rejecting him. Just because Esau was a child of Abraham didn't mean that he was a true son of Abraham, a son of promise and a recipient of salvation. It didn't depend on his birth or his effort, but on God's free grace and kindness. Friends, grace makes all the difference for you, whether you're a child of Abraham or a child of Isaac. But let me put a bow on this. Let me, let me land this plane and look at the final point, the son of Abraham. We move from the children of Abraham, the children of Isaac, now to consider the son of Abraham, because there was a bigger and greater reality going on here. There was, through the lineage of Jacob, another promised son coming. It wouldn't be Abraham's son or even Isaac's son, but rather it would be the very son of God. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, would be born of Mary in Bethlehem. And he would not only bless the nation of Jacob, he would bless all the nations of the world. That it would be through the nation of Jacob, Israel, that God would bless the nations. And, And Isaiah has an incredible prophecy. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5 to 7. Look at this. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Look at this. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. Those names should sound familiar. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. I hope these names are sounding a little familiar. The rams of Naaboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Did you see the names? Midian, Ephah, all of these nations that ultimately came from Abraham, the wealth of these nations would flow in the form of gold and frankincense. And this is ultimately fulfilled when the Gospel of Matthew opens up to a child of promise being born. And at the birth of Jesus, there would be wise men, men from the east, which if you remember, the children of Abraham that weren't Isaac were sent to the east. These men from the east would come. And what would they bring? Look at Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born, In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they offered their treasures. They offered him gold, frankincense, 
and myrrh. Here we see the wealth of the nations beginning to flow to the promised son of Israel. They brought frankincense and myrrh. The nations came to worship him. And the promise given to Abraham that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. Here it is. Because all the promises of God find their convergence in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the true son of Abraham, the promised child of the patriarchs, the nation of Israel. And when we put our faith in him as the true son of Abraham, the Bible says that we become the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. See this, Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That in Jesus, by faith, the promises to Abraham's son of right relationship with God become yours. That we become the recipients of a promise of an inheritance and a blessing. And part of our promise is realized now. You can experience right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, and adoption into God's family in the present through faith in Jesus Christ. You, right now, if you've never placed your faith and trust in the person of Jesus, you can know now, you can know God and become a son or daughter of God. Paul puts it this way. He puts it this way in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He doesn't say that you can write in on the confession your parents made, that you can write in on the confession your brothers and sisters might have made, that you personally need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which doesn't just mean say the words, it means confess it, make it true of your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And it says, certainly, right now, you will be saved. You can do that today. If you've just been walking in the church game, or maybe you're not sure, maybe you're not sure if you really know him or not, that you've been living by your parents' faith or, or by the faith of another, I would call you to, in these moments, talk to God or to talk to one of us so that we can talk with you more about what it means to know him. But there's also a portion of this promise that we're not going to receive in this life. It says we become heirs by faith. And heirs means you've got to wait for the full inheritance, right? And here it is, that the land promise and blessings made to Abraham are ultimately realized after Jesus returns and recreates the world. The apostle John gave us a vision. Look what this says, Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the, la- is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And its light, and by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gate shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. The Bible is bookended with these glorious visions of God living with man. We see the first one, man's in a garden, but in the last one, man's in a city. Man fell from the first vision, but a new mankind lives in the second and only through 
Jesus because what Jesus is doing right now is redeeming all of creation and his end goal is to bring us back to Eden, but better. An Eden 2.0, right? A sin-free, death-free, Jesus is king over all of it type of creation. And in the process, he will separate the true children of Abraham from those who may be so in word only, but don't want anything to do with Abraham or the God he serves. Because the new creation is only for the family of God. It's only an inheritance for the true family of Abraham, those who have faith in Jesus. Let me close with this. Maybe you have an earthly inheritance waiting for you from a parent or a grandparent. But what inheritance you can enjoy today will not, will, but, the, but that inheritance will not go with you when you die. You might get an earthly inheritance today, but it will run out. And friends, you can't take the big truck with all the stuff and you can't take the U-Haul behind you in the hearse. But there is an inheritance you can't enjoy today and will get better and better and better even beyond the grave. And the inheritance of Abraham extended to you through Jesus can be enjoyed and experienced in even greater measure as your life goes on and it gets exponentially better in the life to come. What are you living for? The inheritances of the world with their pleasure, their money, their praise that will end up futile and empty? Or are you living for the inheritance of the Lord, which isn't given to those who are born of flesh or who seek it by works, but only by being born again and trusting in the righteous work of another. Friends, grace makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful that you're so good to us. We're thankful for grace. You didn't have to show grace to humanity. You could have been just as good, just as holy, just as content, just as glorious by just being who you were. But you extended grace to fallen mankind, to people like Jacob, to people like me, to people who are here today. And I pray that in response to that grace, we would be people who confess with our mouth that you're Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him, that you raised Jesus from the dead. But we'd also be people who are generous and give and want to make that message known here in Cades and beyond. Lord, I ask that you be honored and glorified as we leave out of here later today, and ask that you would be with us, and that you would prick hearts who don't know you, and you'd present opportunities to speak about the difference that grace makes this week. And we ask and we pray this on Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to close with singing, but before I do the benediction, just three quick things. One, if you're a visitor with us or want to get connected somehow, there's a booth out there that says welcome behind it. Grab one of these, uh, get connected cards, fill it out, and I'll send you a text or an email this week to connect with you. I'd love to do that. Also want to say thank you to those of you who give. It's been about a year since COVID started, and we're still here. We're still pressing. The Lord has been kind to us. So thank you for giving. Uh, those of you who give, whether online or in the basket, uh, as you leave, I'm thankful for you all. And I'm also encouraged uh, that the compassion table will be out there, and Ramona would love to answer any questions you have about that today 
or in the future. So let's close as we always do with the benediction from God's word. This from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, now and forever. Amen.